Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is the rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, how you feeling? I was trying to find a good adjective that could double as a dick joke, but it's late and I came up blank. So, uh, Zathras will fix that later. Yeah, Zathras can put in a, uh, can overdub my voice. With a, uh, a a good dick joke. Just think of getting a chubby in. Yes, and uh, we're we're on a specific joke tangent this evening. We've speaking got... of Zathras. Yes, speaking of Zathras. Maybe Zathras, great hero. Maybe build statue to Zathras, and others come. Remember Zathras. So yeah, uh, welcome to Babylon Project episode nine. Tonight we are talking about two episodes, episodes 20 and 21 of season one, Babylon Squared, and the quality of Mercy. Um, We're going to start off with Babylon Squared. This was written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Jim Johnston. Full disclosure here, listeners, Anna and Jude made me do the summary for this episode, I'm pretty sure, just so they can mute themselves and laugh at me. You're not wrong. Let's get going. (laughs) Sinclair and Garibaldi are having breakfast. Ivanova joins them, and she is not looking great. CMC woke her up a few hours early, and she is exhausted. The reason? Some strange readings in Sector 14, which Alpha 7 is just getting to now. However, when Alpha 7 gets there, he is surrounded by light, and his transmission cuts out. Ivanova tries to contact the Star Fury, but there is no response. Sinclair notes, however, that it could just be tachyon emissions. Those are common in Sector 14. When Alpha 7 returns, there are no life signs. They take in the craft and examine it, and find that Alpha 7's pilot has died of old age. But he was just 30. I mean, that that's pretty much what being 30 feels like, though. God, it... Really, it does now. He apparently ordered the craft to return on autopilot. On the belt buckle, there is something scratched. B4. Strangely, Sector 14 is where Babylon 4 disappeared after construction four years ago. CNC contacts Sinclair to let him know that they are receiving a distress signal from Babylon 4. They rush to CNC and verify that it is in fact coming from... B-4's commander, Major Krantz. He reports that the station is damaged and they need help evacuating the station staff. However, this message is timestamped four years ago. Sinclair orders a rescue mission stage. They prep a team to the station and depart with orders to Ivanova to send no other ships in any circumstance. As they approach Sector 14, Babylon 4 appears to them. The first shuttles are able to land safely, and Sinclair and Garibaldi order the other ships to hold back for the moment. They are greeted by an enraged crewman who tries to kill them, but is quickly subdued. Major Krantz then greets them. He is shocked, but not exactly surprised by the fact they are from the future. He warns Sinclair they must leave immediately. Then, the flash of light 
Sinclair finds himself in the middle of the station in a firefight. Sinclair has no idea what's going on, but Garibaldi, who is now in riot gear and holding a rifle, does, and he tells Sinclair that they've rigged the station's fusion core to blow. After another flash, Sinclair is back in the present in front of Krantz. The Major explains that people jump forward or back in their own personal timelines here, and he urges them to leave. The evacuation starts to begin, and Krantz explains that the issue started within the first day of the station coming online. First, there were issues with the timekeepers in the station, then all hell broke loose. He introduces them to Zathras, an alien who appeared on the station, who is being held in security. Zathras seems to recognize Sinclair, but refuses to speak. When Garibaldi threatens Zathras, he starts to talk. He says that he has come to steal the station, where it could be used as a base in a great and terrible war. He also mentions a figure called The One, who he would die for. The One is hurt and Zathras must help him. The interview is interrupted when Krantz is alerted to something. Everyone, including Zathras, rushes out of the room and finds a figure in a spacesuit materialize. Zathras declares that this is the one. He is clearly in pain, and Zathras explains that this is a consequence of him stopping the station at this point in time. Sinclair approaches and tries to touch the figure, but is repelled. Zathras rushes to the one and hands him items Zathras has fixed. The one then disappears. Zathras then attempts to escape, but is then captured. He tells the humans that he must leave, or else they will be trapped forever. They take him back to security. Garibaldi starts directing efforts to get the crews onto the shuttles, while Sinclair speaks to Zathras. Zathras explains that he gave the one a time stabilizer, and without it, Zathras will die. Sinclair realizes that the time distortions here are what killed the pilot. While telling Sinclair that they are ready to leave, Garibaldi has his own flash, speaking with Lisa Hampton and telling her that he is leaving for B5, where they have an angry argument. Garibaldi is very displeased with this and becomes even more convicted to leave B4. Cranes is insistent that they take Zathras with them, but as they try to leave, a column follows on Zathras. Sinclair does not want to leave, but Zathras insists that he has a destiny. After Sinclair reluctantly leaves him, the One comes for Zathras, who knew he would not be left behind. As Garibaldi, Sinclair, and the ships leave, the station vanishes. Back on Babylon 4, the figure removes its helmet. It is Sinclair, but clearly older. He speaks of the woman on the comm, saying that he tried to warn them, but it happened just like he remembered. The woman reassures him and tells him that it's time to go and they're waiting for us. As they leave, Garibaldi asks Sinclair if he believes that Zathras does. Sinclair does, and hopes that Zathras is on their side. Now, flipping over to the B-plot, Delenn has left Babylon 5 in a single-person craft to meet with a Minbari war cruiser. It is for a meeting of the Grey Council, where they announce that she has been selected to become the new leader of the Minbari, replacing Dukat. She expresses surprise at this, and that she does not wish to leave Babylon 5. They tell her that... The prophecy will see to itself, and she will be over the Grey Council now. Delenn speaks with another member of the Council and says that she cannot go back, because once she enters the Great Hall, she will never leave. She asks the Council to reconvene. She tells them that she must return to Babylon 5 because she has not finished her work. She believes that this prophecy that they keep referencing is about humanity, and tries to impress upon them human values like individuality and community. 
The council warns her that if she leaves, she will never return. She insists on returning to Babylon 5, and by a narrow vote, they decide not to outcast her. One of Delenn's friends sees her off. While Delenn expresses regrets she will never see the inner chambers of the council, he hands her a triangular object of some religious importance. He insists that if her beliefs are correct, she will need it. That's a very good summary. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty snappy episode. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a real tight episode. It's a real good episode, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's it slaps. Another one that is just hugely important in the narrative arc of the series, too. Also, Zathras. Yes, it also is the introduction of Zathras, from whence our own Zathras derives his name. Yeah, there's so much going on in this episode. It's hard not to love this one. There's just so much going on. Time travel bullshit. Yeah. Um, weird, mysterious plot lines. Alien politics. Yeah. I really love all of... I really love the Minbari. I know that we just last episode talked about like all the problematic shit with them. And it's still there. It's not like it's gone. Yeah. But I really love the Minbari. And I really like what is done with them in this episode. The politicking... And I love the debate here where some of them are like, it's a prophecy, like, let it happen. Uh, you know, the prophecy will attend to itself. And meanwhile, Delenn is like, nah, I'm gonna go do this. <laughs> and she just doesn't care. Yeah. I, I really love that whole plot line. But I also really love the time travel. Uh, I love that what I love what this is setting up. And I'm super, super curious. I should probably just go read the lurker's guide page about this episode it would probably answer this question for me but i'm very curious to what degree the stuff in this episode was known in advance don't you dare go read the the, the lurker's guide page for this episode justin okay but i'm very curious. i think it wasn't i think i because i think it had to be i think it had to be rewritten to fit when o'hare left the show let's see I like how we're just like, this might be our most uh, minefield episode yet. Yeah, it really is. Um, like, there's a reason why we had you do the summary. And it's it's not so that we could laugh at you. It's because I don't think that Jude or I could write the summary for this without injecting spoilers accidentally. <laughs> oh. Just because it's so it's so linked with really important <laughs> stuff. Apparently. Interesting. Uh, there was a, there was apparently a, <laughs> apparently a theory at, at the time that this show up, that this episode aired, that that Sinclair was from a parallel dimension. Oh, wild. Yeah. That was the theory when, after this episode aired, uh, on the interwebs was that that was a parallel dimension. Really? Sinclair. Like, you, you introduce an episode with time travel, and your first well, thought is okay. parallel dimension. Okay, so, so, but also, also, this would be happening, this would have been airing at the same time as DS9, which, like, right out of the gate, practically had mirror universe shit. So, I don't think that it would be that wild a supposition that that might have been something that was stuck in people's minds, perhaps. At some point, we should talk about parallels between this and Deep Space Nine. 
Um, this is not that time. Yeah, I feel like that could be like a standalone episode on its own. Yeah. Because there's also, there's, there's, there's some, there's some broader stuff to talk about there too. This is such a good episode. I also like that, like the one that we just talked about, Voice in the Wilderness. I really like that this one, in addition to having just like a roaring plot and really pushing the story forward and having great pacing, etc. It's also got some really fantastic character moments. Um, like we've got the the bit where Sinclair and Garibaldi prank Ivanova over breakfast and make her fall asleep and convince her that she slept through breakfast. It's it's so good. And it's like Sinclair and Garibaldi being assholes in such a wonderful human way. They're such good trolls. I like that. That's honestly, I love the little like it's it's the it's the good little quiet moments that don't really have any relevance, but are just so fucking good. Yeah, right. And that's that's those are the sorts of things that really help make the show. Agreed. Uh, I also need to note that I recognize that the Mimbari former leader was named Ducat. I cannot take that name seriously ever because the name Ducat is irreparably linked in my brain with Gold Ducat. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Deep Space Nine, people yeah. of Cardassia. <laughs> yeah, that's bananas that they both use that name that's for important figures. Hilarious. Yeah, I don't have anything more to say about this episode. It's just, it's just too good. It's, I, it's really hard to talk about without spoilers. Do you want me to take off my headphones so you can talk about it more? No, I don't really know that there's more to say about that part. Okay. We'll get a two-parter that links back to it, and you know we're going to want to have a full full episode for that two-parter, for yeah. sure. Cool, cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's not a lot that we can talk about, and like we'd like you to be able to listen to this episode at some point, Justin. Yeah. Like, overall, it's a pretty it's an interesting episode because it's setting up a lot and i think that's the problem and it just in it something that i think is interesting is that like you've got this alternate sinclair you introduce at the end but you're still playing out this season's weird thing of what's going on with sinclair what is the what is the problem in your head yeah i i have a question for you justin Yes. Um, you you said in your summary that at the end of the episode, you know, as they're leaving the station, there's a woman's voice on the comms um, talking to old Sinclair. It's not on the comms. Oh, right. Off camera. Yeah, it's off camera, not on the comms. It's a subtle but distinct difference. Yes, fair. There's a there's a woman's voice. You know that there's a woman's voice from off camera speaking to old Sinclair. Did you catch whose voice it was? I, I, I could not recall if I identified it. Should we, should we give that piece of information? Should, should, hold on, hold on. I will, I will, I will, I will. We'll just pull up this episode right now. Or glass. We would sit. Quiet. In peace. Breathing in. Breathing out. Breathing in, breathing out. Oh! Okay. Um, 
I had to I had to have a moment here to like it, it was it was either uh, one of those episodes I watched late or I didn't write it down. But oh shit, that's the lens of a wise. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Now we've all seen Chrysalis. Yes. So we know what happens. But imagine you're watching this season live and you're like, why didn't they show Delenn's face? Why didn't they show Delenn? What's going on? Yeah. And then they get to the end. They get to the first season of uh, the first episode of season two. And they're like, oh, that's why. It's not even first. It's the second. It's the second episode. She's Second episode. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, this is... uh... It's a, it's a good episode, and I'm really I'm really looking forward to us all talking about the two parter in season yeah. three. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. That's going to be the episode that gets one of us to quit the show. Isn't it? <laughs> take take it away, Jude. All right, we are now on to episode twenty one of season one, "The Quality of Mercy," written by. JMS and directed by Lorraine Senna Ferrara. Uh, normally we have an A plot and a B plot, but this episode I'm going to say we have an A plot and a D plot for reasons that will soon become self explanatory. The A plot concerns a murder on the station named Carl Mueller, who apparently quite gruesomely killed two lurkers and one security agent. He was caught and tried for his crimes, and the episode picks up with his sentencing. I'm curious what laws make it so that the civilian security chief, a commercial telepath, and the station commander are all part of the sentencing process, but that's who's doing it. Uh, <laughs> you have this this strange group plus a judge sitting around deciding how they're going to sentence this guy. And hey, it's the, sa- it's the same judge from Grail. Yes, it is. So at least they've got consistency. Uh, but I do like that you get a nice uh, discussion of the laws and logic surrounding capital punishment in the future. Uh, there's no room in the station jails, apparently, and Earth doesn't want any dirty criminals shipped home and refuses to pay for them to be shipped anywhere else. Uh, so it falls to Talia to assist in a thoroughly gross, uh, process called the death of personality. She is going to be asked to scan the killer's mind before a, some vaguely defined process takes place. It's never really described how this happens. Uh, but the the guy's mind is going to be wiped, uh, destroyed. So he, he will have no memory and no personality, and then they'll, they'll build a new one. She won't do it. It's never clear how this happens without a telepath. But anyway, props to Andrea Thompson, who doesn't always deliver for a great performance in this scene. Just want to throw that out there. And this episode in general. Yeah. Talia is clearly miserable and scared and uncomfortable with this process. She has apparently already requested backup and none has been forthcoming uh, because there is a lot of demand and very little supply for telepaths that are capable of this service. I promise I did not make this up to go along with the dick joke theme of this episode, but when the judge asked Mueller to give his final statement, I swear to God, I swear to Valen, he says, stroke off. (laughs) i'm dead serious yeah i remember that when the sentence is announced however mueller's too cool for murder attitude cracks somewhat and he does the standard like 
I'm going to get you all. You're all dead. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, of note is the fact that they plan on carrying out the sentence the same day, which I'm sure has never led to anyone being mind wiped when they were innocent. Franklin and Garibaldi have a charming conversation in which Garibaldi does his usual shitty bullsh bullshit and says he wishes that the process were more painful. Franklin uh, scolds him casually in a buddy-buddy kind of way, but does not really push back. Talia prepares by putting a black band on her badge, uh, which is never explained uh, outside of some notes on the internet, and just looks miserable. Uh, she approaches the process, and she's snappish and rude and just obviously does not want to be doing this for good reason. She goes into his mind, and you get your sort of standard TV show mind of a killer mindscape thing where he taunts her with all the people he's killed and he has a standard serial killer. They're all for my chorus of death. Creepy moment. Um, she pops out of his mind and flees and he does another creepy murderer thing. And it is after this that we catch up with her in the Zen garden. And Garibaldi has a rare moment of not entire douchebaggery. Shocking. Another nicely acted scene, however, by Andrea Thompson, um, where she tries to explain the horror that she just experienced. Meanwhile, we have a side plot involving Dr. Franklin. Uh, rather than give it a letter, I'm going to name this plot and call it the self-righteous butthole plot. It revolves around Dr. Franklin running a free clinic in Down Below, and uh, it starts with him lecturing Ivanova about his job is to heal people, not run med lab, damn it. In the course of his lecture, she mentions that there's only half a dozen people in line, not the full dozen that apparently is his standard, uh, and that offends his sense of self-importance, so he goes off to find out where the rest of the sick and needy people are, since his ego's not going to stroke itself. He apparently gets wind of a faith healer that he thinks is a quack and goes looking for this competition and finds an older woman using a strange machine to treat a man. She knows exactly who he is and is completely nonplussed when he goes all, you know, you're, you're a hoax, blah, blah, blah on her. Uh, he can't decide whether he thinks she's faking it or whether she's threatening the safety of her patients by using an alien machine she doesn't know anything about. So he's, he decides to settle on general jackass and then leaves when her daughter shows up. Later, Franklin decides to really crank up that creep factor by tracking her down at work, which is fucking creepy, Franklin, then flexes his credit to cover her commission so they can talk, even creepier, then takes her to a bar to talk, still creepy, Franklin. Uh, he then asks about her mom and why she stopped being a real doctor. Turns out she used too many stims. Long, flat-faced stare at Franklin uh, and accidentally killed a patient. She lost her license and then went looking for alien healing tech to get it back. This is a buckwild plan, but I guess it worked? I, kind of? I, I, think it, I think it might be a little bit equivalent to like Walker Smith you know, wanting to, wanting to, like, if he wins the Mutai, then he can go back to Earth and, like, prove himself. Yeah, I mean, talk about a fucking calling your shot point for the fence kind of situation, but whatever. I mean, she nailed it, so more power yeah. to her. Uh, that was three years ago. Franklin, 
who has barely seen this device, just assumes that it doesn't work, despite having seen alien tech that can turn a guy into a vegetable <laughs> transformer. Uh, he has snooped on their finances, which is just so mondo fucking creepy and violating, and asks, why haven't you gone home? You've got plenty of money. And the daughter's like, my mom's a healer and she's happy here. That's enough for me. Uh, he's also had one of his lackeys do follow-ups on all her patients. And much to his arrogant-ass surprise, they're all doing better. Oh, fuck you, Franklin. So he goes to see Dr. Rosen and sees her working on the machine. And this time he brings out his magic wandy thing and does a little woodle 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 Star Trek style and finds out, oh, your life signs are getting weaker while you use it. Why Why couldn't he use that to scan for Mimbari DNA in the Pakbara? This is what I'm referencing. This is what I'm talking about. Uh, finally, she talks about the machine a little bit, and it turns out that this machine transfers life energy, whatever the fuck that is. And it was used as corporal punishment. They would take a sick person and hook them up to it and a criminal and drain the life energy out of the criminal into the sick person. But she's found a way to do it slowly. Uh, she is dying of some terminal illness that is apparently soups painful. And she's using her life energy to heal these people with what time she has left in life. Franklin is suitably chastened and makes a deal with her that she will send him all of her notes on the machine should anything happen to her and the machine. But in the meantime, she'll come in for checkups once a week uh, to help her manage her condition. And then as he's leaving, he reverts back to his dickbag self and hits on her daughter in the hall outside of her office because he just can't stop being the worst this episode. At this point, our two plots combine. Franklin puts it together the Mueller, on his way to being Mindwipe, escapes Garibaldi because Garibaldi is a fucking chump and takes a shot in the arm and escapes into Down Below. And Franklin ex suspects that he may seek out Dr. Rosen for treatment. And sure enough, that is where Dr. Franklin finds him. Uh, he tracks Mueller down and see, finds him hooked up to the machine uh, with a gun held on Dr. Rosen's daughter. And Dr. Rosen hooked up to the machine. She determines that he is going to kill her daughter either way. So she reaches over and flips a switch and reverses the polarity and sucks all the life out of him, uh, healing her life-threatening disease and killing him in the process. Uh, we cut to her trial where she it is determined that she acted in self-defense and as a result is forced to turn over the device, but otherwise is set free. She's not fine, however, she says. Uh, she is racked with guilt for having killed Mueller. Lastly, and most importantly, our D-plot. Uh, we start with Londo on a call with a superior being scolded for not putting in any effort, I guess. Uh, so he goes out to make contacts with other civilizations, I don't know. It's not at all clear, like, how this starts. Uh, and immediately runs into Lanier and asks after Delenn, who is currently out beefing with uh, the Grey Council. He talks with Lanier and finds out how sheltered Lanier is. Lanier's basically lived in a monastery his whole life. And he is, out of the goodness of my heart, I will show you around B5 for two days. 
so he goes off and of course the first place he takes him to is a strip club the dark star where lando is you will not be surprised to learn on a first name basis with everyone uh they get seats at the edge of the stage and lando are you calling him Lando? Sorry, where Lando uh, <laughs> apparently tells Lanier that by studying the dancers, they can learn about their culture from the movements of the bodies. Lando discovers he's forgotten his credit card. Uh, and so we're doing apparently this whole bender on Lanier's stipend. We also learn a fun fact about the Minbari. Uh, even a small amount of alcohol triggers violent psychopathic rages in them. So Lanier's drinking water while Londo is drinking on Lanier's credit card. Seems weird, but okay. Some time passes, and when we return to Londo and Lanier, Londo is being bored out of his skull by Lanier's apparently lengthy recitation of his studies at the temple. We get a cool hint here that Minbari math is base 11 because he talks about his 116th year in the temple and then his 117th year in the temple. Interesting. Yeah. I thought that was cool. Uh, but he perks up when Lanier mentions that he is he studied mathematics, specifically probabilities. Uh, so he does what any degenerate would do and takes him to a poker game, uh, which he claims is the ultimate form of interstellar understanding, which takes us to the one of the greatest scenes in Babylon 5, I think, maybe. <laughs> Uh, Lanier turns out to be a bit of a card shark with his probability uh, knowledge. And uh, we see him sitting on a huge pile of, ch of credit chips, boldly declaring the odds of his hand and Londo grumbling about how if he had any finesse, he could be winning so much more. Uh, but now it's his turn to deal. As the betting is proceeding, he fakes a cough and unbuttons his waistcoat, which twitches ominously. <laughs> we then see across the table... Next to an alien, a fucking tentacle comes from under the table, grabs a card, and disappears under the table. And then Londo suddenly has an extra card, which he then puts in his hand and slips another uh, one of his cards from his hand under the table. And the tentacle puts the card back on the deck. Folks, you have just seen a Centauri dick cheat at cards. So and also, and also a Centauri <laughs> penis. <laughs> so, uh, when I was told, oh, watch Babylon 5, it, it's truly one of the best sci-fi shows ever. It, it has great themes and everything. I just watched a dude cheat with his penis. <laughs> yes, you did. Uh, this goes well for him, so he tries it again. And this time, as he's reaching for a card, the alien puts a jug of cold water, of ice water on it, resulting in what has to be one of the one of the best scenes in the show. He's this he just, Peter he Jurassic really cold. sells this scene so well. He's is it cold in here? Or is it just me? And Lanier obliviously is like, I think the temperature is just fine. Uh and he's really not like he it's really getting to him, uh, but it it sets off. <laughs> it, it sort of like tips tips his hand, so to speak. Uh, and the other the aliens realize that what's going on. 
Because he, he's trying to pull his tentacle yeah, out. Yeah. And he's this like, wobbling the water jug. He's like straining against it. Uh, there is I'm a- I'm not going to make a joke. I'm not going to make a joke about pulling out. I'm not. <laughs> nice. There is a whip crack and he manages to retrieve himself. Uh, but the, the jig is up and uh, he is accused of cheating and a brawl breaks out. The episode closes with Ivanova gleefully telling Garibaldi that she has discovered who the unnamed instigators of the brawl he hasn't had time to investigate were. And then cutting to the closed elevator and Garibaldi shouting, Who? We then see Sinclair waiting on a bruised and disheveled Londo and Lanier to give him some answers. Surprisingly, Lanier lies. Uh, He claims that it was through his misunderstanding of cultural clues that the brawl broke out. After Sinclair leaves, he tells Londo that there is a loophole in the famous Minbari honesty. It is an honor to help another save face. He then asks Londo about the tentacle, at which point Londo whispers in his ear something, which Lanier looks mortified by, and Londo holds up the statue of their goddess of, of passion, and he, in brief terms, explains what it is that we've been dealing with. Our dear listeners, I took psychic damage. <laughs> so a, a couple of things. I would I would like to point out there that it's the same prop. It's the same prop from the uh, knuckling feeder. Yeah, I mean that it definitely su- is. It's our. It is it, that supports our theory from episode seven um, that this is that. The Nacolade feeder is, in fact, a Centauri penis monster. Yeah, 100%. Um, So, according to JMS, first interesting tidbit, this was originally titled The Resurrectionist, which is a terrible title, so I'm glad they changed it. Additionally, according to JMS, buckle up for this, according to JMS, this is one of the few episodes he thinks is not his best work. He says this is like 90%. Apparently, he was sick with the flu and has no recollection of writing this episode at all. Wow. Okay, Mikey, whatever you have to tell yourself. (laughs) However, I do like that he specifically says he likes the Londo and Lanier parts. That's that's the part he likes out of this. Which, same. Yeah, Yeah, big same. Last of all, when asked on the message boards what is the technical term for Centauri genitalia, JMS was kind enough to respond with tentisticularities. Is that am I saying that right? Yes, yes. I, I think that is as good as you're gonna get. Tentisticularites? I don't know. It's it's a horrible word. Um I also want to Call out if you have not watched this episode recently. Go back and watch the scene, this scene in question, and listen for the amazing foley work on that whip crack sound. He apparently it's asked really for the loudest possible whip crack they could put in, <laughs> and it is not a ba- it is not a disappointing choice. It's so good in that scene. Um, I also really, honest to God. 
the the lurkers guide page for this episode is a gold mine. There's so many good good entrants in it. The comment that he makes about the uh, WB, he's like, did you ever did WB ever give any objection? He's like, you know, they uh, they didn't ask any questions about this one, and uh, I didn't uh, I didn't raise I didn't ask. <laughs> I didn't say anything about it. We just sort of mutually agreed to not talk about the fact that I was putting Centauri dicks on TV. <laughs> I mean, it's not a human dick, so it's yeah. gotta be okay, right? Ask me no questions, I'll tell you no lies. Yeah. So, uh, there you go. I, I think one of my favorite details as well is the, like, like forced cough and the, like... <laughs> You know, unbuttoning and like the little wriggle that he does, where it, it really so is reminiscent of like, you know, somebody somebody with testicles adjusting them, like attempting to be surreptitious. Can mm-hmm. you imagine? Like, there's a certain sect of humanity that when they found Centauri porn, just went hog wild with it, right? <laughs> just had to have been in heaven oh yeah no you know that the remember when i was talking about how like humans humans got out there in space and tried to fuck everything yes Yes. you know that the centauri there was a, a a segment of the centauri who were like oh this is why we thought you were our cousins (laughs) because Because online really got into that yeah Because, like, you know, (laughs) you know, even though you've only got one, which is sad for you, I'm so sorry. um, (laughs) You know, we we can appreciate your your you know industriousness with with that. So, (laughs) yeah. uh, God help me. There are new keyboards in the future. No, apparently not. You have to do everything by voice command. Can you imagine searching for porn? Oof, like, oof. <laughs> computer, show me, show me pornography, audio and visual. Centauri Veil. Well, it's, 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 it's reminiscent of The Good Place, where Eleanor is, you know, asking Janet, so, you know, is this like an incognito browser sort of situation? And Janet is like, everything is completely confidential. Now, what sort of pornography would you like to view? <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah, the, the there's no way we're actually going to talk about the other plots of this episode. I was going to say other stuff happens in this episode, but the only yeah. part of it that's worth talking about is how good Andrea Thompson is in this episode. I I also I also like that it does tie in with the the more dodgy Andrea Thompson that we've had recently, which is the one where um, Kosh hires her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and like it it kind of furthers the world building of commercial telepaths just being completely shit on. Yeah. Um because the di- there's no there's no reason for somebody who's essentially a like just businesswoman to have to read the mind of a serial killer repeatedly multiple times in her life. Yeah. Like it's just awful. Yeah, the the disillusionment of Talia with the Psychor is a nice plot line that that is ongoing throughout this season. Andrea Thompson, who's doesn't always stick it 
every episode delivers in a big old way this episode um reportedly that was part of the problem that she had with the show and why she left was she wanted more screen time uh and i think if she had done more episodes like this she might have gotten it because i i she really kills it in this episode talia looks horrified and angry and disgusted and scared and just sells it with very not a ton of lines. Like it's not as though she has, you know, 600 lines to give. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a real economy of lines to like delivered, like emotional impact here Yeah, that I I really appreciate. So that's really good. I I really appreciate that. The scene in the uh, Zen garden is a really good example of her doing a lot with, with a little, but the whole, it's funny. This episode is, so with the exception of you know londo's dick this episode is completely forgettable in a lot of ways but so much is seated in it like yeah the, every the, single that plot machine. line the machine the mind wiping because we, we'll see that again Talia. with um with the gethsemane mm-hmm. so so much like almost everything in this episode sets up something for later it's kind of wild and i'm sure they didn't intend it especially for an episode that was only 90 percent. what's his exact quote i i have to read his exact quote because it's such a bananas quote um of all the scripts i've written the only one i'm less than absolutely 100 percent thrilled with is quality of mercy because i wrote it while absolutely sick with the flu and have no memory of even writing it as it is, though, I'm about 90% happy with it, particularly the B story with Londo and Lanier, which came out great. Oh, JMS, I've read some of your Spider-Man and your Thor. You either have a very, very low bar for what you consider 100%, or you have some very selective memories. Well, I think he's talking about <laughs> B5 scripts. I, I, I know, I'm, 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 I'm just being... <laughs> yeah. I'm being a uh, shit. <laughs> the last thing I will say about this... This episode features Garibaldi being extremely gross. He's like every scene he's in, he's like a chest thumping, just caricature of like man must be violent kind of attitudes. He wants to space like his first lines in the episode are him wanting to space the uh, Mueller and talking graphically about how much he would enjoy seeing the guy eat vacuum for two minutes. Yeah, it's it's not a good look. No. Garibaldi is a living embodiment of all cops or bastards. Yeah. And lastly, uh, the woman who plays Dr. Rosen, uh, June Lockhart, was on a- another sci-fi show with the actor who plays Lanier, Bill Mummy. Uh, they were both on Lost in Space together. Interesting. Yeah. I think that the so the the Franklin subplot is in many ways questionable. I actually don't particularly mind Franklin being portrayed as kind of a jackass here and there because he kind of is, right? Like we're we're I think used to care to like especially doctor characters who like a lot of sci-fi doctor characters are like very good and Franklin's kind of a jerk sometimes especially when it comes to things that challenge his world view. Mhm. I think that it's um 
it's interesting and I don't I don't hate it because he's not being portrayed as being in the right. He's being portrayed as being a jackass. Yeah, that well, yeah, they they certainly yeah. stick that landing. God, I he's so bad in this episode. They don't yeah. always portray him this poorly, but holy crap. He that especially that one there's a there's that one sequence, like the central bulk of that mm-hmm. plot line where he's just like you know, first he's dismissive and stupid in his first encounter with Dr. Rosen. Then he's the absolute sketchiest worst with her daughter. Oh, yeah. And then he like hits on the daughter after he finally makes peace with Dr. Rosen. And it's just like, oh, man, it's just the hits. The hits just don't stop. It's so bad. I think it would have been a lot better if the if the interactions with the daughter had been cut out, basically. That I yeah. think if it was just essentially him versus Dr. Rosen, it would have been more, more interesting. Yeah. yeah. Oh, for another hey that person, the, the patient at the opening of the episode, like the, the young woman, is a uh, very early in her career, Constance Zimmer. I don't know who that is. Uh, she's been in a bunch of stuff. I know her from Agents of Shield, but that's but as we've determined on this show, that legitimately means nothing. She was on, she was on BoJack Horseman also. Okay. Oh, a little a little character moment that we skipped over that I did enjoy with the Franklin subplot is when Ivanova goes to check on Franklin, and there's this bit where like she's just going to like kind of check on him, and she makes this offhand comment of like, "Well, if there's anything I can do to help, let me know." And he's like, "Scrub up." Yeah, not exactly what she was expecting. Right, right. God, yeah. Franklin is the the furthest thing from sympathetic in this episode. I don't think there's. One, I did not find any point in this episode where I did not want someone to pants him. (laughs) Yeah. So. That's relatable. All right, folks. So we have covered the first 20 episodes of the season. Um, 21 episodes of the season. 21. Give or take take a couple. Give or take a couple. But we only have one episode left. That is episode 22, Chrysalis. So join us next time where we are going to be covering that, as well as looking back at season one and shooting the shit about what we liked, what we didn't like, and um, all the various predictions that I have for season two and further. Until next time, listeners, be seeing ya. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.